you please join me in standing out of eager expectation to hear of Christ and His Word and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, even in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 878. It is a text from verse 11 through 27 of Luke chapter 19. The entirety of the text deals with a parable. It's the 17th parable that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Luke. And significantly, it's the final parable that Jesus utters before He finally arrives in Jerusalem. And so even though it's going to take us a few more months to get to the end of Luke's Gospel, we are actually probably within just about a week of Jesus in Luke's narrative Uh, dying on a cross and being buried and rising again on the third day. And so what you need to know as we come to this text, uh, you want to hear a particular earnestness and eagerness in Jesus' teaching as the end of His ministry is very much in sight. And so let me read our text for us this morning and pray one more time briefly that God would bless our study of the Word and we will begin our study. So let us hear now uh, for Christ speaks to us today through His Word. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That he rules and reigns over us and even now is guiding us by his word and spirit that we might know him. So give us an open heart to follow Him. Give us open affections to serve Him. To listen intently to the eagerness of our King who speaks to us. Help me to preach as the King says I must with 
faithfulness and clarity and boldness uh, that he might be exalted in our midst. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're an ordinary person, the researchers tell us you will do this for at least five hours this coming week. Which means if you're an ordinary person, the researchers tell us, you will do this for at least 11 days this year. And if you're an ordinary person, uh, that means that over the course of your ordinary lifetime, you will spend 27.5 months doing this, some two and a half years, which the researchers say is consumed along with six months of waiting at a red light. What you know is you will do this, by that I mean waiting. Our life is full of waiting. Some statisticians say it's even maybe as much as five years of an ordinary life is spent waiting on something or someone. And we come to a text this morning where Jesus takes up this theme of waiting as he is soon to get to Jerusalem. And we're meant to ask two simple questions of the text before us this morning. What are we waiting for? Number one. Number two, how are we going to wait for it? What are we waiting for, and how should we wait for it? And the parable of the ten minas, which is more traditionally called the parable of the pounds, answers that question with this simple summary, which we can kind of take as the main point from our text this morning. It's the call to wait for Jesus' return as a faithful steward. Jesus expects that His faithful followers, His kingdom disciples will wait for His return as a faithful servant, stewarding properly what He has given to them. And so there's just three simple sections that come to us in this parable. You'll see verse 11 gives us the purpose of the parable. Then verse 12 through 25 is the parable itself. So the main portion of the text is just the parable. And then verse 26 and 27 is Jesus' application of the parable, which you might say is the promise. So you've got... The purpose, the parable, and the promise. And what I want to do as we walk through the text this morning is take those sections and from each one pull out what it says about how we are supposed to wait for the king in his return. And the first verse of our text, verse 11, tells us to wait patiently. For look at how it begins. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. Now, students, if you were with us last week, do you remember what was going on as Jesus said these things in verse 11? If you weren't here, you could scan your eyes back up through the first 10 verses of chapter 19, and you'll see that Jesus is in Jericho. There's this famous story that he has, this encounter with a a wee man named Zacchaeus, and this tax collector repents of his sin. He's saved. He has a fellowship dinner with Jesus. And these things that verse 11 mentions is really what comes in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 19. If you look what Jesus said there, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now those verses are important and vital for all manner of reasons. It tells us even in the New Covenant age, God relates to households, to families, not merely just to an individual. That salvation has come to this house. It reminds us of the truth that we see all throughout the Bible, that those who are truly the children of Abraham are those that have repented of their sin 
and trusted in Jesus Christ by faith alone. And again, Jesus is reminding us that his mission is seeking and saving sinners. So as he's putting all of these basic gospel truths before his hearers, he sees a need to tell them a parable. As he's saying these things, he proceeds them to tell them a parable for two reasons, according to verse 11. And the first reason is his destination is near. Because you get these two words, because, show up. Or this word because show up two times. Notice how it first shows up in verse 11. He proceeds to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. So kids, I hope you know by now, if you've been with us for these many months in Luke's gospel, how important Jerusalem is in the ministry of Jesus Christ, especially in Luke's gospel. In chapter 9, verse 51 which in our study meant all the way in July of last year, we heard and saw Jesus say he needed to get to Jerusalem. And he's going to that destination with divine determination because he's got a destiny date with death. And he's almost there. Uh, Jericho, where he was at this time, is somewhere about 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So if you wanted to place that kind of in our Collin County context, it'd be like Jesus and his disciples are up in Princeton, Texas, and they're trying to make their way down to this church building here in McKinney. They are very close. Uh, The end is in sight. And because the end is in sight, we get a second purpose for the parable. Notice the end of verse 11. Because they supposed, he teaches the parable, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he gives them a parable because the destination is near, but secondly, to correct their expectation. So they've been following Jesus. They'd seen what he was doing, these miracles, these exorcisms, these these healings, these displays of of majestic power. They had heard his preaching that, that caused a stir in all the surrounding areas, his teaching that captivated even the religious leaders. And they were rightly discerning to various degrees that maybe this indeed, maybe it is, the, the king that we have been looking for. And we know the king has to get to the holy city of Zion. He needs to get to Jerusalem. There his kingdom is going to begin. Jerusalem is in sight, they are thinking. Surely the kingdom is finally going to come. But Jesus in this parable is not meaning to correct their mistaken notions of the kingdom. He, he's done that a lot already. Their expectation of a political kingdom that was going to overthrow Rome, restore Israel to a place of, of prominence on the world stage of, of power. Well, he's corrected that by saying, no, his kingdom's going to come through a cross. He's going to get the crown after the cross. But in this parable, he's more interested in correcting their mistaken expectation about the timing of the kingdom. They think it's going to appear immediately when he arrives in Jerusalem. And if you know the story, that's not how it's going to happen. And to illustrate that, he tells them a parable. So the first thing we're meant to see here is the call to wait patiently. For the disciples even, and those crowds following Jesus, what they're looking for in Jesus' immediate inauguration of the kingdom is a quick fix to their spiritual problems. Everything that was wrong in their life, everything that they thought was wrong in their life, was going to be fixed automatically when the kingdom is established in Jerusalem. And so often, isn't it true that we and even our own spiritual life as followers of Jesus want a quick fix to our spiritual problems? Countless millions of Christians around the world have bitten the apple of error that says that the fullness of life here on earth is one of full prosperity and and free of pain. When in reality, the kingdom does not yet come in its fullness until Christ returns, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth. And it's there 
when suffering is eliminated, when hardship is eradicated. But here in this life, just like our Savior, it's a cross before a crown. And lest we too think that the kingdom is going to come so much into our world and correct all of our problems with with such an immediate manner, uh, Jesus says, no, there's going to be a period of waiting. So you need to wait not just patiently, but you need to wait fruitfully, which is what he brings out in the parable itself in verses 12 through 25. So say I was up here teaching one day in some context, and I began to tell a story about a young politician from New England elected president, yet assassinated during his first term. Probably many of you begin to think of the name John F. Kennedy. Even though I didn't mention his name, so conditioned are we by a certain part of our national history. Well, Jesus is actually doing the exact same thing in this parable. He is taking a well-known event in Israel's history and turning it for his own truth-filled Purposes, Because all the way back in 4 B.C., Herod the Great dies. He tells his son, Archelaus, you get the realm of Judea. But in reality, the only person that can give Archelaus the realm of Judea is Caesar in Rome. So Archelaus has to go to Rome to get his kingdom. But what follows him all the way to Rome is a delegation of Jewish people that want to protest before the emperor and say, No, you can't make Archelaus king over us. He is evil and he is wicked. We remember this Passover week when he slaughtered 3,000 of our people for just some small disturbance in the temple. And so notice the mirroring factor just a week probably before Passover that Jesus brings in this parable. Look at verse 12 through 14. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And that simple nod to this history of Archelaus with the Israelite people would have summoned immediately for that original audience a unique attention, because they know how that story went. But maybe this story is going to go a little bit different. And so we're meant to see, of course, in this parable that Jesus is represented by this nobleman. But the majority of the parable deals with these servants to whom he each gives one mina. So you might have a little footnote in your Bible that says a mina is three months wages. So it's not a large amount of money, but it's a fair amount of money in which to test out the faithfulness of his servants. And so before we go any further into the parable... It is good for us to ask the question, because this is a parable, what the minas are meant to represent. If the nobleman represents Jesus and his his kingly authority, well, then what does the mina represent? Well, many people have taken this parable in Luke 19, compared it to a parable at the end of Matthew called the parable of the talents, and assumed it's essentially the same parable. So the minas, therefore, must represent spiritual gifts or abilities that the Spirit has given to each of God's people. But I don't think that's the case here in this parable, because I actually think they're distinct, but also what we see with this mina, each servant gets the exact same amount of money. Each servant gets the exact same thing. So what maybe is it that each follower of Christ gets exactly the same? 
I think what we're meant to see here is it's the deposit of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read from it earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So often, Paul is speaking to this young pastor, Timothy, saying, guard the good deposit, this entrustment of the gospel that's given to you, this down payment of the good news that is within your heart that we are, as God's people, supposed to use. And so as the parable continues, uh, what we're going to find out is that there are three different groups of people in the parable, three different groups of people in how they relate to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the first of which are servants he commends. There are servants who are commended. Notice verse 15. He returned, having received his kingdom, and he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Going on, he said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mind has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So what we need to see is that faithful use of the gospel means a fruitful use of the gospel as we wait for the king's return. That he gets delighted. Our king is happy with his servants who use his down payment who uses deposit in such a way that bears great fruit. But you're also meant to see from this little window into the king is the depth of his grace and generosity. Because do you see what he says to this first servant in verse 17 at the end? Because you have been faithful in what? A very little. He doesn't say you've been faithful with a lot. I gave you a, a ton of money or I gave you a great amount of gifts. I've given you just a little bit. And if you know the money, the way it would have worked out, he's essentially taken three months' wages, made it into 30 months' wages, so two and a half years, and that small investment, that small return, now gets him the right to rule over 10 cities. And then the second servant makes his three months' wages into 15 months' wages, so just over a year, and he gets five cities to rule. And we're meant to see that the grace of this king is all out of proportion the blessing is all out of proportion to the work performed. And such is the way always with the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not just merely grace that we receive from Christ. It's super abundant grace that we did not ever merit or deserve. And so you have these servants who are commended. The second group represented by a third individual are servants who are condemned. If you've ever read Jane Austen's classic book, Pride and Prejudice, and you've made it all the way to the 43rd chapter. Uh, you know that Elizabeth Bennet eventually goes on this visit to this great estate of Pemberley. And one of the servants is a lady named Mrs. Reynolds. And she's showing Elizabeth around the grounds, kind of taking her on a tour of everything to see. And eventually they stop at this wall. And hanging on the wall there is a picture of, at that point at least, evil Mr. Darcy. Because Elizabeth knows, or at least thinks, uh, that Darcy is this hard and harsh, this stern and, and strict master. Uh, but Miss, Mrs. Reynolds, she thinks different. Uh, she says, ah, you know Mr. Darcy. He's the best landlord, the best master that ever lived. And at that point, Austin writes in just kind of this parenthetical comment that Elizabeth began to see Mr. Darcy in an amiable light. Uh, kids, I doubt you use the word amiable this week. 
but just simply means lovable. You want to spend time with this person. It's a kind of light that is the exact opposite of this third servant and how he thinks of his master. Notice what we're told in verse 20 and 21. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So what you need to know is immediately there's this kind of conflict in the text. We've just seen this ruler come back with his kingdom and all out of proportion bestow this grace upon these, these first two servants that have fruitfully used the deposit he's entrusted to them. But here comes a third servant saying, no, actually, you're mean. You're cruel. You're harsh. You take what doesn't belong to you. And maybe in the worst case scenario, he's just slandered the king and should be killed on the spot in that ancient culture. But what the king does in this parable is turn the words back on this servant. For notice how the text continues in verse 22 and 23. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. Do you see what the king is saying here? If I really was so hard, so harsh, so strict and stern, wouldn't you have at least been afraid enough to put it in the bank so I would get a little return on my money? I've told you to engage in business, but all you've done is sat on it, you wicked servant. So again, we should ask the question, students, well, who does the wicked servant represent? Who, who is he meant to symbolize? As is so often in passages like this, there's no small amount of debate on who the wicked servant symbolizes. Many people, especially in the 20th century, would see the wicked servant as a genuine Christian, a sincere disciple, because he doesn't seem to be included in the judgment that comes later on in the passage. Maybe he is something of a depiction of what you can find in 1 Corinthians 3.15 that says there are those true followers of Jesus that will pass through the fire of judgment and come out with everything lost, but nonetheless they're with the Father forever and eternity. And I think that's a possibility. I think what is more likely is this is not someone who is a genuine disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. For the king says, you wicked servant. This person finds no grace and mercy in the king. Only this yoke of difficulty and severity within this king's law. Why would I serve you? You take what you do not have. You steal what does not belong to you. Why would I do anything for you? Such comments don't seem to be any sort of language from a genuine disciple, does it? So maybe... It's better for us to see this person as someone who does claim to be a Christian. Does find itself, himself, herself, in the covenant community of Christ. Yet, outside of 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, sits on the gift of grace given to them in the gospel. Never stewarding it for any purposes, any spiritual fruit, any gain of exaltation unto the king. And do you not think it is very possible... That someone in this room, and maybe it is you, is like the third servant. You find the word of Jesus Christ harsh, 
and not full of sweet tenderness? Do you find the authority of this king to be one in which you'd rather not be under? And so you just kind of do your own thing lest you actually obey what he expects of you. You wicked servant, he says. I will condemn you with your own words. So see servants who are commended. See servants who are condemned. Or maybe you might be like the crowds that come in verse 25. Notice what we're told there. The ruler says in verse 24, take the mina from this servant and give it to the one I just gave ten cities to. And they say, notice verse 25, Lord, he has ten minas. It's little more than, than the complaints of little children after tricking and treating. What do you mean? He gets two more pieces of candy? He already has three. It's not fair is the point. So often, even in the church of Jesus Christ, we've become so enculturated to the world's notions of fairness that we actually think the grace of Jesus Christ is something that is unfair. Of course it is. But you want to know how often this affects us as Christians? Just notice how often people that claim the name of Jesus, when they find an enemy of theirs, someone they don't enjoy, go through difficulty, there is something of a hidden smile within their soul. Or when someone they don't like has something go well, rather than be delighted for them, they're downcast at the blessings of grace that God has given them. There are servants who are going to be commended. There are servants who are going to be condemned. We're to wait patiently. We're to wait fruitfully for the return of Christ. And thirdly, we're to wait hopefully. Well, it was just about a week ago that I saw some sort of minor kerfuffle erupt on social media, which is basically an every hour occurrence in the world we live. And it was due to the Northumberland Heath Police in England. On a routine traffic stop, they had searched a vehicle and found within this vehicle a sword. And they took a picture of one of their officers holding the sword, and they posted it on Facebook saying, we are thankful that this weapon is finally off the streets. And, you know, comments erupted as they are prone to do on social media, my favorite of which being with quite a bit of tongue in its cheek. Well, don't come back to us when the dragon infestation comes and there are no swords to defeat that foe. <laughs> And whether or not you agree with the Northumberland Heath police, we can agree, can't we, that a sword is a weapon, especially a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. And the Bible tells us that the promises of Jesus Christ are like a sword that cuts both ways, that promises blessing to the faithful, that promises cursing to the faithless. Look at what Jesus says in his application now. Verse 26, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's quite simple, isn't it? In a very significant and spiritual sense, you must use it or lose it. And faithful stewards steward God's gift of grace hopefully, knowing that a promise of goodness and grace awaits them at the coming of this king. But to sit on the gift, to squander the gift, is to find you losing everything along with the gift itself. But remember, I told you there are three groups of people in the parable. Servants who are commended, servants who are condemned. There are also enemies who are crushed. 
Because if you look back up to verse 14, remember, there's this delegation of citizens that goes following after this king. We don't want him to rule over us. And clearly in that immediate context, it represents the nation of Israel. And look at the crushing verdict that comes on them in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It is is very much a hard mic drop moment to that crowd, isn't it? That's where he ends the teaching. That to reject Jesus Christ outright is to just reserve a spot in the slaughter line at the day of judgment. Faithful servants are those who are waiting for Jesus Christ patiently, fruitfully, but also hopefully. I don't remember exactly when it was. It feels like it was at least a decade ago, a long time ago, so I may get the details wrong. But someone sent me a video via email one time, and it was titled, An Assessment Test. And as something of a competitive person, I thought, yeah, sure, I'll take the exam and see what happens. And so you click on the video, and up come two basketball teams, one dressed in white and one dressed in black. And the screen summons you to pay attention, to count how many passes the team in white makes. Okay, so paying attention. You click play, you're paying attention, and you watch all the passes of the white team. And you think, okay, 13 passes. A couple seconds go by, they say the correct answer is 13. And then, you know, you're patting yourself on the back. Yeah, I knew I was pretty aware. And then three seconds show up, and another prompt is on the screen. But did you notice the moonwalking bear? (laughs) And sure enough, they replay the whole thing. And as you're paying attention to the team in white passing the ball, a man dressed in a bear suit is moonwalking by (laughs) right across the court. And I, like probably countless other millions of people, didn't see it because I wasn't looking for it. And the same kind of reality happens a lot of times in the parables of Jesus Christ, or maybe even the Gospels of Christ as a whole. We're so eager to find ourselves in the story that we forget that the story is actually about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he's going to do. Unless we so get so wrapped up in what it means to wait faithfully for his return and forget what this text is clearly telling us about Jesus Christ, we've gone wrong. And so I want to make sure that we see two final things as we begin to close. Because this parable is making very large claims about Jesus. First, all authority belongs to Jesus. Uh, You see that, don't you? Uh, There's no way around it, even though it may be subtle within the text. He is the nobleman who receives a kingdom, who has all authority to adjudicate his kingdom as he sees fit. And we know this is true, don't we? You find it exalted in other places in the New Testament. Think particularly of Ephesians chapter 1, where it says that God, of course, didn't allow His Son to stay dead, but He raised Him up and seated Him in the heavenly places and gave Him a name that is above every name, above all dominion, authority, power, and rule, and put everything under His feet, that He might be head over all things. And so so He has all authority in what is but the natural response of us, but humility. It's even echoed in the first two servants. Look back at verse 16 and 18. Do you see what they say to this king? Lord, your mina has brought back ten more. Your mina 
has become five minors. It is his authority from start to finish that guides his servants. All authority belongs to Jesus. But secondly, all accountability belongs to Jesus Christ. And you dare not think of this as some sort of reverent accountability partner for our life. He is the one who will hold us at the day of judgment and find us faithful or faithless with what he has given to us. And so it indeed is the key question that we have to ask this morning. Are you ready for the king to return? How are you waiting for his return? Do, do patience, fruitfulness, and hopefulness mark your waiting? Or is it more a misguided, misunderstood notion of who he really is? Or possibly, you just are rejecting him outright. How are you waiting for the king's return? The king, with all authority and with all accountability, is soon to arrive. And you must wait with faithfulness. And we must wait as a church with readiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is merciful and gracious, who is righteous and holy. Oh, we confess that uh, we are so prone in our love for the world to forget that he is on the way. We are prone to work at things in this life more than work for the kingdom, more than labor with and for the gospel. And so we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might indeed be ready that we might indeed be found patient, fruitful, and hopeful at the return of Jesus Christ. And we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.